This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, March the 6th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. On the show today, Denis Boudreau discusses the importance of making workplaces inclusive for employees who are neurodiverse. And Microsoft has updated Windows 11 to include an AI-powered Bing search engine. Stephen Scott of Double Tap TV will give you the lowdown on that one. The show begins with the top story of the day. Lots of stories here about environment, high seas, biodiversity. Sarah Naffa has details. The treaty is a turning point in a years-long effort to bestow order on vast stretches of the planet where conservation was hampered by a confusing patchwork of laws. The agreement will create a new body to manage ocean life conservation and establish marine protected areas in ocean regions outside national boundary waters. Initially, the negotiations were anticipated to end on Friday, but stretched deep into Saturday, concluding a total of two weeks of talks in New York. Raina Lee, UN Ambassador for Oceans and Law of the Seas Issues, expressed her gratitude at the accomplishment, saying, Good evening-ish, ladies and gentlemen. The ship has reached the shore. Experts say that a global oceans treaty is needed to enforce the UN's pledge to protect 30% of the planet's oceans, as well as its land, for conservation. I'm Sarah Nafa. Coming back to Canada, Canada's spy agency has released a report about some national security dangers related to climate change. Rob Westgate takes a closer look at the CSIS findings. The agency says it foresees an increase in ideological motivated violent extremism from people who want to speed up climate change solutions and those interested in preserving the current way of life. It also says there are looming dangers to Arctic, coastal and border security, as well as serious pressures being placed on food and water supplies. Coming to some more specific environment stories, there's a battle brewing between a logging company and the B.C. government. The company does not want to harvest an area over environmental concerns. The government says that'll come with a price. John Kennedy dives deeper into the story. Kerry Rook of Downey Timber says the provincial corporation that manages public forests told the company that it must fulfill its contract to harvest the areas north of Revelstoke, otherwise it must be forced to pay full stumpage fees for trees left standing. Rook says the company values its relationship with First Nations and the public and doesn't want to jeopardize its social license by logging areas that overlap with provincially recognized at-risk old growth and caribou habitat. He wouldn't say how much the company would have to pay, but says it's a significant amount. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. Staying in British Columbia, parts of the province are dealing with an invasive species problem. The animal in question? Goldfish. Discarded pets are growing quite large in natural bodies of water. Thompson Rivers University Associate Professor Brian Heisey describes just how big the fish can get. The biggest that I've, I've looked at in BC has been around 25 centimeters in size, so we're talking about but size of footballs sort of thing. So they're not, they're not the little fish you see in the, in, the, in the pet store. They actually get quite large, and they have the potential to get even larger, especially probably in some warmer, more productive waters. 
Heisey says the government needs to continue to fund efforts to remove goldfish and work with the pet industry so people can return animals instead of dumping them. Coming back to the East Coast, most of the Windsor-Quebec corridor was blasted with a snowstorm over the weekend. Some parts of the region received well over 30 centimeters of snow in just a few hours. Toronto Transportation Services General Manager Barbara Gray describes the scale of the cleanup. This amount of snow accumulation is high for Toronto. It's a little bit more than our typical storm, but well within the parameters of what we are prepared to manage. Snow clearing operations are underway and uh, they are focused on ensuring mobility and accessibility as quickly as possible, particularly for emergency and transit vehicles throughout the city. And then going back to the West Coast, more dangerous weather is expected to hit the U.S. West Coast and potentially parts of Canada as well. ABC's Matt Gutman reports teams in California are working around the clock to rescue people still trapped in their homes after last week's storm. The West pummeled with new rounds of snow and severe weather as officials in California warn it could take days longer to rescue everyone imprisoned in the snow, piling up to rooftops and swallowing homes. Officials say crews have removed more than 2,000 Olympic swimming pools worth of snow from San Bernardino County alone. Snow is expected to extend inland, up and down the West Coast. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on, on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, are you surprised when a major retail store announces that it's closing? 20% of you said yes. 80% of you said no. That was in relation to the Nordstrom's closing. Today's daily poll also having to deal with a little bit in the uh, weather and climate sector. The question is, how would you describe your city or town's snow removal policies? Good, bad, or mediocre? Good, bad, or mediocre when it comes to snow removal. Uh, Toronto absolutely got walloped. You heard that clip from Barbara Gray. The uh, cleanup is indeed underway and remains underway. It's been about 60 hours since 30 centimeters of snow fell all over the city of Toronto. From my perspective walking in this morning, and certainly that's only a little bit of anecdotal evidence, the uh, roads looks pretty good. Pretty reasonable job done by the city in terms of clearing the roads. Sidewalks, however, let's call that a hodgepodge. There was certainly a lot of ice. That's not necessarily the city's fault. But there were a lot of areas where snowbanks were just left piled up right in the middle of a sidewalk. And clearly they were piled up, I don't know, a couple days ago. And now they've frozen over. So now there's just big ice mountains in the middle of sidewalks. So you're trapped in by snow banks on the outside and trapped by little mini ice banks on the inside. Really puts you into a bad situation as a pedestrian. So I would describe the policies as mediocre, but even then I think I'm being a little bit generous. I'll put it into context for you. My walk-in in the morning is typically about 20 minutes, but based on ice and random snowbanks all over walkways, it took me about 24 minutes today. So four minutes out of 20, that's about a 20% increase in my length of time getting into work this morning. And I'm pretty mobile. I can hop over things and do little hops and jumps as required. If I required any kind of mobility device or mobility assistance, I probably just would have turned home and called an Uber. So I don't know. I mean, that's probably even closer to the world of bad, but I'm going to call it mediocre because it was only a few bad spots, but those few bad spots can make a big difference in somebody's life. Alex, you're a little bit southwest of us over in Burlington, Ontario. How would you describe the city of Burlington's efforts? 
It's it's tough, especially in the context of this last uh, uh, snowfall, because we got off pretty easy, all things considered. There was a lot of water and moisture opposed to the actual snow in that regards. And then plus, coupled with the, uh, the sunshine and warm weather we had the following day, uh, a lot of it was gone very quickly. I will say in the morning on Saturday, there were very slushy roads. So the main arteries were all cleared. Uh, but, you know, those side streets and things like that, they still took a, a few hours before those got cleared out. So overall, I think I'm somewhere between good and mediocre. I, I don't want to say overall good because I think especially when you get into weather systems where it lingers over a day or it's it's over the span of a, a night in the morning, that's when you really see kind of the strain on the system when they have to do multiple plowings of the same street or same sections that can be uh, tough but i think for the most part when it comes down to the city and their role it it's not too bad so i think i would go probably with good but i mean with with burlington we've been expanding so much it, it's hard to tell i don't know how our our area of the city would compare to kind of some of the north end or or downtown things like that those those are always an issue but when it uh for snow removal the biggest issue is always on the private properties per se with the uh, people refusing or or just neglecting their own responsibilities of shoveling their their drive walks or uh, driveways or sidewalks things like that but when it comes to the actual city they do a pretty good job of making sure those areas that they're responsible for are clear okay so i appreciate your positivity alex i like that optimism <laughs> it's nice to get it from time to time i'm going to come back to toronto's overall policies here and why i put them between bad and mediocre because it's not simply what happened with the storm last friday into saturday these things happen you're right sometimes you get a big snow coming through it's 30 centimeters you need to be reasonable and understanding that things are going to take time to fully clean up but there was a snow storm what about a week ago in toronto maybe a week and a half ago and a lot of snow banks were still on sidewalks or on the sides of roads going into the snowstorm this past week so it's not just that maybe they're dealing with a crisis and they struggle a bit in crisis moments it's that once the snow falls and they go through an initial scrape or an initial clean there seems to be no forethought about hey, what happens if we don't do anything to clear the edges of the sidewalks? Because that's what it comes down to. You get these huge piles of snows that restrict the sidewalks down to about one lane four, five, six, seven days after a storm, and then you get another storm, and now you can't clear the old bank because it's ice. So when I say that it's mediocre or bad, it's not simply saying, okay, a storm blew through and they did a poor job. It's that there's no foresight or thought about, hey, what can we do to mitigate the impact of the next storm after this storm, right? It's that there, it seems that the general policy of the city of Toronto is, well, it'll melt in April or May. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, too, it's that these are all subcontracted by the city of Toronto to uh, companies that specialize in snow removal. And I would say in the case of Toronto, I would put it as bad, 100 percent. I still remember, I think it was last year or the year before where we had that massive storm in January. And there was literally piles of snow that were untouched for 10 days, you know, days, if not a yeah, week or 10 two. days. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you look at that, and it's like, that that was horrendous. That was unacceptable. I understand in Toronto, there's a lot of areas where you just run out of space to put snow. But, 
you have to, that's not an excuse to just be like, well, we can't do anything about it. So just live with like, you know, unpaved streets or sidewalks or things like that, whatever our responsibility is. Now, maybe this year, because they went with this new uh, subcontracting firm that this they're trying to address it. But I mean, even from the last one, as you mentioned earlier, there was a lot of stories that were even coming out this week of how access, uh, especially for people with mobility uh issues and, and, and assistive devices and stuff like that have struggled to get around the city ap days after yeah, the snow had fallen and a they week. cleared it. And, and that's still a continuing issue. So I, I would still put Toronto at bad and it needs to improve and it needs to have more intention into how are we taking care of sidewalks? It's one thing to do roads, but there's so many people who rely on either public transit or on, on uh, pedestrian walkways or things like that. The roads are, are important, but the sidewalks are just as important. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, different cities have different policies, and that's why this national show is asking the question today. So no matter where you are, at Accessible Media on Facebook, excuse me, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter, that's where you can vote. You can also write in feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can also give a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, one 509 Don't want this to end in total negativity about this weather conversation, because Alex, something that was really fascinating last Friday was as a whiteout blizzard was blanketing most of the greater Toronto area, a lightning storm was also kicking in. So I sat there on my back balcony, uh, couldn't see three or four feet in front of your face because of the whiteout conditions. But through the whiteout, every couple of minutes, there'd be this huge flash of lightning. Alex, sometimes in life, you're thankful that you have shelter and that you're warm and that you're safe and that you can really appreciate a nature art show put on a little bit of music watch yep. a little bit of lightning uh enjoy a whiteout i i just thought it was a really kind of special evening as that snow was coming down well and it's funny because i don't remember outside of maybe five years ago ever hearing about thunder snow or or anything closely resembling to that so it, it's something that we we've become a bit more accustomed to i didn't uh see any any thunder snow uh, here in, in Burlington in my neck of the woods uh, on Friday. But, you know, I, I, I saw lots of videos. I heard lots of stories of uh, people in other areas of the GTA who, who got to experience it. And it's something that's just very fascinating and interesting to me because it just seems like there's such a conflict between, you know, the, the thunderstorm and snowfall. So just having a mess, yeah. I, I would really find it fascinating to watch it. <laughs> Borderline apocalyptic, but also beautiful, as uh, yep. tends to be the case with a lot of these things. All right, Alex, stay right there, because this conversation was a lot about environment and climate. Well, you've got a little bit more with the National Weather Update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy today with a chance of snow. The high is zero degrees, but feeling like minus 11 today. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, there is snow expected today with up to two centimeters set to fall. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, but the high today is one degree. In Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny and uh, the high is three degrees, but it's a bit cool with the wind chill at minus nine. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's sunshine as well. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour today. The high is four degrees, but again, with that wind chill feeling like minus nine. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds today. The high is two degrees. 
and there is a wind chill that makes it feel slightly cooler at minus 5. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it is mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. The high is 1 degree, but with that wind chill again, it's going to feel below freezing at minus 7. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it is sunny, but very cold today. The high is minus 13, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 28. As we move westward, the trend continues in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It's sunny as well, but bitterly cold. The high is minus 11, but with that wind chill, it's more like minus 33. To Calgary, Alberta, there's snow off and on today. The high is minus 11 as well, but with that wind chill, more like minus 27. In Edmonton, Alberta, snow off and on today. The high is minus 14, but with that wind chill, it feels like minus 25. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sunny clouds later on in the day, but it's quite cold as well with that Arctic air. It's minus 21 as the high, minus 44 with that wind chill. To Vancouver, BC, where it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain or snow in this morning, and then it will be clearing up in the afternoon, and the high is going to be 9 degrees for Vancouver. And finally, over to Victoria, BC, where it is mainly cloudy with rain expected in the morning, and the high is going to be 8 degrees today. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Michelle McQuig stops by to talk a little bit about the news as an issue continues to brew about a BC cannabis company allegedly been given Health Canada approval to manufacture cocaine. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There is some confusion over a BC cannabis company apparently receiving approval from Health Canada to manufacture cocaine. It all comes in the backdrop of the pilot project to decriminalize small amounts of illicit drugs in British Columbia. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig can shed some light on this story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Don't oversell it now, Dave. <laughs> okay, I, there's, there's only so much light to shed here. Fair enough. Well, that's that's just it. It's the, a very confusing. Uh, we're in a bit of an information vacuum on this one, but it's a really interesting issue. Right. So the story emerged late last week. What is at issue? So essentially, there was a company called Astra Labs in Langley, British Columbia, that has put out a statement saying that they have received permission from Health Canada to start making and imp- making cocaine and importing coca leaves to synthesize cocaine and keep making it. Uh, this came as a real shock to a number of people. The the issue first kind of became public uh, on the floor of the BC legislature, which is itself kind of unusual. And that provoked some some strong comment from people saying, uh, we don't know what's going on with this. The BC government was not consulted. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how Health Canada came to make this decision. And Health Canada itself isn't offering any comment. So mm. there's a whole lot of questions around this one that we simply don't have the answers to at this point. So let's hear some reaction from a few political leaders. BC Premier David Eby reacted to the news. It is not part of our provincial plan. If Health Canada did in fact do this, uh, they did it without, not only without engaging with the province, but without notice to us. Uh, So we will get answers for British Columbians about this. This is not part of our initiative. Uh, and, And we'll make sure British Columbians get the answers they deserve about this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also reacted to the news. 
There are limited and very restricted permissions for certain pharmaceutical companies to use that substance for research purposes and for very specific, narrowly prescribed medical purposes, but it is not a permission uh, to sell it commercially or uh, provide it uh, on an open market. Michelle, was there any other notable reaction to share? I think specifically about the backdrop here that as this pilot project was announced, there was some chatter about safe supply, but never any follow through on that. So any other mm -hmm. notable reaction? Because I know some politicians were clamoring about safe supply this weekend. For sure. Well, and actually, this is the, we're on the same page here. The BC Centre on Substance Use had some interesting remarks about that because, based on safe supply. They're saying that all the safe supply conversations so far have been focused on opioids and cocaine obviously does not fall into that category and hasn't really been part of that conversation. So they're also baffled. They've, they've issued a statement saying that we're not quite clear how, if at all, this fits into the safe supply conversation or the safe supply strategy in BC, which of course is an open question itself. And of course, there's always the issue of decriminalization and, and how that enters the conversation and, and you know, adds a bit of additional complexity to that mm -hmm. situation in BC specifically, even though the rest of the issues have broader uh, resonance. Michelle, I think we'll put a pin in this one for now, and I imagine the story is going to develop as the week moves along. Certainly a response. For sure, from... especially once we get some Health Canada responses going on here. Yeah, <laughs> remarkable. You know, wrong. a story that breaks on a Thursday and no uh, bureaucrats at Health Canada available for comments on Fridays. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't you know? Oh, what a uh, shocker. Uh, Michelle, let's shift over to Ontario, uh, the mm -hmm. world of provincial politics. The Ontario Liberal Party held its annual meeting over the weekend. Uh, what's, what's the notable news that emerged from the gathering? A couple ones, I think. The, the big one is the fact that they have decided to... I'm going to back up a sec, so bear with me here, Dave. Okay. Uh, for those who are not paying attention, the Ontario Liberals have had a wild reversal of fortune in the past couple of decades, or the past decade or so. Mm -hmm. They formed government in Ontario a lot. Uh, they were in power for at least 10 or 12 years for a while, until 2018, when they had a huge electoral defeat and actually lost official party status. They weren't able to regain it either in last year's election, so they still have no official party status, and they're very much trying to find their way out of this. So that was the context for this weekend's annual general meeting, which took place in Hamilton. And the biggest decision coming out of that meeting, there were a number of things discussed, but the biggest was to reform the way they're going to hold their leadership vote process. So rather than having a delegated convention of the kind we used to see all the time, they're going to just have a simpler system of one person, one vote. Um, it sounds kind of bureaucratic and, and kind of in the weeds, and it sort of is, but it's also a significant shift in how mm -hmm. they're planning to do this. They're saying that they're they're hoping to have a more democratic process in this. They're trying to get more people involved. Uh, this is part of their their mission of renewal, uh, is, what, is what they're calling it. They're trying to sort of re-energize the party and find their way back into a more prominent place in the legislature. The very next day, however, they turned around and they elected a very familiar liberal face to be the president of the party. Um, so... I don't know a lot about Catherine McGarry beyond the fact that she used to be a, a provincial cabinet minister. She, mm -hmm. she served as minister of natural resources and transport minister back when the, the liberals still did form government. She then served a term as mayor of uh, the city of Cambridge. Um, but she is more of an establishment, liberal establishment figure. So I, I suspect there will be some questions raised about how that fits in with the renewal narrative. But those were really the two biggest developments coming out of that AGM this weekend. Michelle, I'm going to note that this question's a little bit unfair and you're allowed to bounce it right back at me and say, Dave, we really don't know. But it's been about a year since the electoral defeat and it's been about a year since they've been without a party. How long until an actual leadership campaign gets underway in earnest? 
Great question. And it's hard to say because this is one of the things that the new executive has to do. Uh, Catherine McGarry was not the only new executive position decided yesterday. The whole the whole executive team was set was put in place. And this is honestly one of their biggest and first tasks is to set out the kind of timelines for this. So we really don't have a sense. Yeah. All we know now is that how uh, the, the broad strokes of how that race will be conducted. Well, they still have three more years to figure it out. Uh, Michelle, <laughs> let's end on something more of a somber note. Uh, Jerry mm. Smith has passed away. Jerry was a colleague of years at CP. Yes. Jerry was also a very familiar voice on the show as I oftentimes would play her voicer reports. What remember, what remembrances did you want to share about Jerry this morning? Oh, thank you for, for giving the opportunity for that, Dave. Yeah, this was a, a really big shock for all of us on, on Friday when we learned that that Jerry Smith had died. She was only 60. Uh, she was a hilarious person. She was very, very straight shooting, very sassy, uh, but just a big bubbly presence in the newsroom uh you probably got a bit of that sense from hearing mm -hmm. all her reports she had mm -hmm. a very sort of warm conversational friendly delivery and that was no act that that absolutely came through in her personality here in the newsroom she was a huge animal lover so lucy is uh going to be missing her lavish attentions as much as anyone else will be um very very engaged with with the news, very devoted to her, her family. Uh, she's survived by her mother, which is also just terribly sad mm. in so many ways. Yeah, um, this was a real shock and a, and a difficult one for, for the newsroom. Michelle, I'm so sorry to you and your colleagues. My condolences to you all, and Jerry will absolutely be missed. Uh, Michelle, have a nice day. Thank and you so we'll much, Dave. We'll talk to you later in the week. Take care. Have a good week. That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Denis Boudreau will discuss the importance of making workplaces inclusive to neurodiverse employees. But first, here is Canadian Press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minutes. Bay Street wrapped up last week with some healthy upward momentum and U.S. stock markets slightly outpaced those results. Toronto's S&P TSX gaining 244 points, closing at 20,582. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 387 points to close at 33,391, while the Nasdaq rose 226 points to 11,689. The two major Asian markets are continuing the trend of Positive gains. Japan's Nikkei finished up 310 points at 28,238. Meanwhile, the Hang Seng in Hong Kong closed up 36 points at 20,603. In just a couple of days, Canadians will hear from the Bank of Canada on its latest plans for its key interest rate. And Northern Air operators say a Canada-wide pilot shortage and other challenges are making it difficult to keep up with demand. Finally, the loonie is trading at 73.59 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. How you communicate with people matters. It's one thing to be heard. It's something different to be understood. That matters in your personal life, and it really matters in your professional life. Denis Boudreau is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Denis joins us with some thoughts on this subject. Hey, good morning, Denis. Good morning, Dave. So, Denis, you've been working on communication accommodations for neurodiverse people in the workplace. What are some of the things that you're looking into? Well, I'm looking into inclusion. I mean, as most things that I work on, uh, the angle is always disability inclusion. Uh, whether it's in the workplace, such as the topic we're talking about today, or just some people's ability to 
really take advantage of the information that's out there, uh, either on a personal or professional level. So my my angle really here is to look at how I can help uh, or, or you know how organizations can help themselves really with uh, being more inclusive of people who are neurodiverse and and understanding better what the impacts might be of uh, different types of disabilities on communication in general within a team within the workplace mm. itself. Denis, what? What, neurodiversity implies a certain spectrum. What kind of definition have you applied going into this research and into this project? Um, a, a rather uh, typical one, I'd say, interesting choice of word there. Um, the, the idea being that um, it's about letting people understand that brains are wired in different ways and, and none of those are necessarily bad. And uh, and so so that's that's the starting point, so to speak. Um, it speaks to the idea of helping leaders, for instance, team workers understand um, different uh, conditions such as uh, uh, the autism spectrum or uh, or ADHD or dyslexia, learning disabilities in general, mm. uh, traumatic brain injuries, that sort of thing. Anything that that would fit into that category, and um, and and normalizing it basically, so that people stop thinking about neurodiversity as well thinking about you know themselves if they're neurotypical as being like air quotes normal and then other people not being normal and mm -hmm. then rather normalizing all these different conditions so that we all welcome everyone's contributions based on how their own brains are wired and how they think and, and view the world along the lines of asking a couple methodological questions here this question may seem a bit basic but what kind of communications are you drilling into meetings emails reviews all of it all of it and more really i mean a, a big piece of it is just communication within a team so uh oftentimes the questions are going to be about so we're, we're struggling you know having clear communication, like unambiguous communication amongst ourselves as a team. So-and-so uh, as a different perspective on things. And there are, you know, personality clashes, conflicts, that sort of thing. And oftentimes it's just a question of misunderstanding about expectations and, and just everyone's reality. So a, a big piece is related to that. And then, of course, that sort of transcends into work meetings into presentations, conferences, uh, email, uh, Slack messages, Zoom calls, like all of these things. And anywhere where people basically communicate, there's a there's a risk for misunderstandings and, and frustrations, resentment, because people don't quite you know, communicate in a way that they feel either understood, welcomed, appreciated, acknowledged as 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 they are. Putting this into practical terms, what are some of the habits that employers or coworkers have that exclude their neurodiverse colleagues? So many different things. Um, you know, as an example, let's say you're in a work meeting, and uh, we, we, you know, a bunch of us are in a work meeting, and I'm presenting a PowerPoint on uh, on on you know the screen there. And I keep referring to the different things that you can see, for instance, like as you can see here on the screen, and then I talk about oh, you know, gosh. something. Yeah. <laughs> you're hitting, so a, you're hitting one of my pet peeves there, Denis. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I did, did it on purpose. But um, but you know, things like that are great examples of what we're talking about, where some people might not be able to uh, to appreciate the information as it's being conveyed and and would rather prefer a different types of type of accommodation or 
you know, in this particular case, like verbal description of what they're actually point people are actually pointing to, so that they can also follow along. So that's one. Another might be, uh, you know, very long-winded emails that you're supposed to read. If I'm someone who has a learning disability, and you know, reading is not something that I'm particularly comfortable with, having to go through these really long emails and being expected to read through the whole thing and being able to participate, say on the fly about that particular topic is also something that not everyone can do. Um, it's about handling, uh, you know, the, the stress, the anxiety that might come from having to work harder than others, just to be able to keep up because the way that people communicate are just not adapted to your own needs and reality. Um, so many different examples like that. It, it might be, you know, speaking for myself as someone who's colorblind, for instance, um, if someone shares graphs that are all color-based, I'm typically, you know, at a loss with, with mm. that information because there's a lot that I'm missing as a result of that. So it's all those little subtle things that can make someone feel either less than or feel like they're not being acknowledged or cared for um, because the way that people communicate just don't include their particular needs and expectations. Denis, it's so funny. You and I have been having this conversation for quite a few years now, and this is one of the first times we've really delved into the workplace in depth. It, mm. it, a lot of what you're describing there always strikes me as people just maybe being a little bit sloppy in their preparation. For example, you described the meeting scenario where someone says, as you can see on the screen, and it, it just sort of, whenever that happens to me, I always think to myself, would it have been that much more work for somebody to have organized a few of their thoughts and prepared a simple plain text document that could have been sent out a few minutes before the meeting just to give everybody in the meeting an opportunity to review what's about to happen? Or even when, or when you're descri describing that email scenario, a long, long eight-paragraph email that's really only saying a couple of things but is loaded up right. with flowery language. I, I always yes. think about directness in the way that people communicate as being inclusive, maybe eliminating some of the adjectives and the flowers and just getting to the point. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you, you started by talking about the, uh, you know, sending the information ahead of time a couple of minutes before the meeting. I would say a couple of hours before the meeting, really. I mean, if you, mm. when, when you understand, you know, what you're trying to achieve here and, and, and how, if you really believe that inclusion is important for you and your team, if you're a leader on that team, for instance, and you really care about everyone feeling included, you should plan accordingly. And planning accordingly means that if we're going to have a meeting, and I know that someone on my team is blind, for instance, you know, making sure that the PowerPoint I'm going to be using is accessible. I mean, is a pretty obvious thing that I should be taking care of. And also sending that ahead of time so that people have time to digest it. They can come to the meeting with a better understanding of what's going on. They will be able to backfill any of the things that might happen that you know everybody else will not think about because that's not their reality. And people can participate better because they know what's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And sadly, the workplace being what it is, you know, meetings are put together at the very last minute. People come in rather unprepared most of the time, so they're winging it for most things, which means that those who struggle with keeping up because they can't see as well or because they can't hear or you know what however other way in which they they're uh they're, they get left behind have to work twice as hard if not more just to be able to try to participate at a very low level it prevents them from being able to fully participate it prevents them from being able to you know shine as others might and for a reason for reasons like that and so many other reasons those folks typically get passed when it comes time to, for promotion because 
they did not really find a way to differentiate themselves from others because they, they're always playing catch up. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 a pretty significant issue that can really be addressed by being a little more conscious about what neurodiversity or you know disability in general really has in terms of impact on the workforce and building working hard to build an environment where everyone has an equal chance to succeed and and, and you know uh work in, in a way that 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 works for them Denis, a lot of the work that you do is quite complex. Neurodiversity, as you mentioned, via some pretty broad definitions, implies a wide range of accommodations and considerations. And you're doing this work. You're actively advising companies on this. How difficult is it to create best practices when there might be such a spectrum of needs or preferences? It's not as difficult as people think. I mean, there are subtle things that are more difficult to do, of course. You know the basics are pretty straightforward. If you if you if you take stock of the challenges that people on your team have, if you if you acknowledge those and you work towards addressing those needs first, everyone else is going to benefit from that. So so you know this is what people like me call you know designing for the extremes, for instance, where instead of designing my presentation or writing my email for who I would perceive to be someone who's neurotypical, for instance, someone who doesn't have a disability, or at least not one that I can tell. Um, if I if I start writing that email, if I start creating that presentation for my colleague or my uh, you know so that person on my team who has a disability, whatever that disability might be. So if someone is blind, for instance, I will pay attention to things like describing. If I have someone who's dyslexic, I'll pay attention to maybe you know being summarizing a little bit more and not having as much flowery speech in, in, in my email. If I'm talking about, think about someone who's colorblind, I'm gonna pay attention to color contrast, mm. you know, so on and so forth. If I, have a, if I have videos and I think of someone who's hard of hearing or deaf, I'm gonna caption that video. So all these things are going to help those folks feel included, but all the things that I've, that I've given you as an example here are also just ways in which everyone else will also benefit because the meeting is a little bit more easy for them as well. If I can watch the, the, the captions on the video, as I'm listening to it, I don't have a hearing disability, but you know my brain processes the information in a second in, in like another modality as well, which helps me. If the color contrasts are better, even though someone might not have be colorblind, it's going to be easier to perceive the information that's there. Like all these things benefit everyone. So, designing for the extremes of the human experience like that makes sure that the middle of that bell curve will take care of itself, and everyone else will have a better experience as a result of that. The you cohesiveness of doing that makes the workplace a better environment for everyone by default. I, there, there's nothing to dispute with that answer. That That's so well put, because what you described are the basics of inclusion. And when you do the basics, imagine that you include everybody along the way uh, for yeah. amazing points. <laughs> and, and what I would just add really quickly to that is to, to your initial question about like, what are some of the things that people can do, like strategies and, and things like that. If you begin with those things, everything else becomes natural. I mean, we could mm. talk about more complex things that you could be doing, but those will seem very difficult to achieve because the foundation is not there yet. But if you start thinking inclusively about you know, the way that you communicate and you fill in all these little pieces that I've talked about, that I just talked about, or you know, a bunch of others that can come to you if you start thinking about you know, those, those situations, everything else, it, it scaffolds your, your strategy mm. basically so that you can build these other more complex things easier, more easily rather, 
uh, when the time comes to do that. That's right. It's an ongoing progress. That's right. If, if you take care of the foundation for the basic communications, it does mean when you get to a more technical problem or more technical situation, then you're able to grapple with the technical situations. Like let's say you're an, an engineering firm, for example, and you've really got to drill down on a technical drawing. If you've done everything else properly up until the point of that technical drawing, now you've got a similar language you can speak to find a solution. Absolutely, exactly. And you know things like you know being being open, being patient, being flexible, um, you know, accommodating, um, you know, welcoming of what people are disclosing when they feel that they can trust you enough to do so. You know, acknowledging those things and acting on those things is the best testament that you can have to actually caring. And and with that builds trust, and with trust builds more you know, opening from people who need those accommodations or could benefit from them. And as this grows, it snowballs into a more inclusive workplace mm. very naturally. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I guess it's a long process, but it's an ongoing process where, you know, baby steps gets you closer and closer to that goal because we're talking about human care, humans caring about humans ultimately. Mm -hmm. Denis, last question, switching gears, something very exciting is happening in the next few weeks. You are publishing a book. You will tell us all about it in depth next month, but put it on the radar. What's the elevator pitch? The elevator pitch is some of the things we just talked about. Uh, so the book is called The Inclusive Speaker, um, and it's about communication. It's about you know speaking professionals. It's about communication professionals who want to address their audience in a way that is inclusive, whether it's from a stage or a Zoom call or a board meeting, whatever that might be, like ways and, and things you can think about to uh, be more inclusive, to become more inclusive, and to make sure that you're not leaving any of your audience behind. Um, speaking to the 40 some percent of people in our society who are either uh, have either have a disability are uh, you know aging are marginalized by technology that's roughly about 40 percent of the population um, so it's it's you know tons of tips and tricks to get those folks included and make them feel like they're part of something um, yeah so that's that's the, the elevator, elevator pitch Denis, I cannot wait to pick your brain about writing a book, but for now, we must say goodbye. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thank you. Great to be here today. Thanks. That is Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. Coming up after the break, Amy Amanti stops by with a review of the Oscar-nominated film, Women Talking. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The 95th Annual Academy Awards are taking place this Sunday. Woman Talking has been nominated for Best Picture as well as Best Adapted Screenplay. Amy Amanti will stop by for a review in just a moment, but there is a clip from the movie for you to take in. In this scene, Rooney Mara's character, Ono, is speaking to August, who is taking notes at a table. They are sitting inside a barn with hay in a remote Mennonite community. It doesn't matter what I think anyway. Oh. Is that true? Do you really think it doesn't matter what you think? How would you feel if in your entire life it never mattered what you thought? I'm not here to think. 
I'm here to take the minutes of your meeting. But if in your entire life you truly felt it didn't matter what you thought, how would that make you feel? When we've liberated ourselves, we will have to ask ourselves who we are. Amy Mantis here with a film review of Woman Talking. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. So, Amy, this film is adapted from a novel written by Miriam Taves, great Canadian author. I have no idea what it's about, though. The previews didn't tell me, and that clip certainly didn't tell me. What's the movie about? <laughs> You know, I had no idea what it was about either. Um, I just heard people saying, you got to see this movie. So I, okay, I'll go into it with that, you know, that lens. So there's there's some heavy stuff here. So I think that maybe a content warning is always a good thing to throw out there. So I'm going to just do it. Um, so as you say, it's a book that's written by Marion Taves. Uh, it was a 2018 novel. Um, and it's the seventh of her novels, actually. Um, and as folks know, Canadian writers, a lot of Canadian, a lot of Canadiana here. Um, this film is, um, in Miriam's words, this is what she says, that it's a response to, um, it's an imaginary response to real events. So the real events, of course, were the fact that there were these women in this Mennonite colony called the Manitoba colony that uh, were waking up in the morning, uh, finding themselves having been raped. And uh, this was as a result of uh, the men in the colony uh, spraying their homes, the insides of their homes with animal anesthetic and rendering them unconscious. So, uh, and we're talking about children four years old, women of all ages in the colony. And uh, uh, of course, these are women that have had no access to education, uh, which is why August in this clip is taking the minutes. So you would wonder why there's a man taking the minutes of this meeting. Uh, uh, there's a group of eight women that have been tasked by the women in the colony to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to stay in the colony? Are they going to leave the colony? Um, and they only have 24 hours to do that because the men who are the rapists have uh, 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 have post bail and the other colony men have gone to pick them up and bring them back. So time is of the essence here. Um, yeah, so I mean, like in a nutshell, Dave, that's, that's what we're talking about here in Women Talking. Amy, the story um, is a brutal one as you yeah. describe it, which implies you need the right kind of actors to tell this story. Mm -hmm. Who made up the cast? And how would you evaluate the performances? Yeah, so as we saw in this clip, uh, this is Rooney Mara, who's uh, does an excellent job in this character in this uh, character role. Uh, she um, brings a real sensitivity to this role. She is a pregnant woman in this story, and of course, the stakes are quite high for this character because. Um, she is with child as a result of one of these uh, attacks in her sleep, right? Um, and uh, and um, is grappling, of course, with with the what to stay that you know wh whether to stay or how to go, but also um, the coming to terms with the fact that she's got a child that she wants to love, uh, and she does. She does love this child, but how the child came to be was not you know, the greatest of circumstances. So anyways, she does a fabulous job. We've got Claire Foy, who we've seen in many things before, who also does a fabulous job. And Frances McDormand, who most folks probably know, Oscar winner herself, has done many a fabulous, I always remember from her from Fargo. Um, 
And uh, and she's also a producer on this particular film. And um, I think that what happens is you've got this group of female actors playing female characters, obviously, that are that are a mixture of like really strong opinions or a mixture of I don't know what to do, help me kind of opinions. And uh, and that's really nice to see in this combination of of women in this story is that the opinions are so uh, so varied, right? And sometimes you wonder yourself, how how are they forgiving these men? How are they forgiving these acts, right? But there's all there's every perspective covered. So I think uh, the sensitivity that these women brought to these roles is really important in a story like this. So furthering along those lines, Amy, a story like this is not a happy one. It's not no. an easy one. It's a complex one. Maybe I'm even stealing your answer here. But why is it important that cinema continues to tell these kinds of stories? Yeah, I mean, there's. I think there's a lot of reasons why it's important. I mean, I would say for me... Um, I didn't know anything about the Manitoba colony uh, and I didn't know anything about this circumstance that had happened. And maybe that's because it happened before I was a person who was really paying attention to news stories. Maybe it's because it wasn't widely available as part of news. Maybe it was because it was from a province that I wasn't living in, right? So all sorts of reasons why we don't have access to uh, to relevant content in our, in our own history. I think we see a lot of movies that have a lot of American history, and we don't see a lot of movies that have maybe a lot of Canadian content or Canadian perspective. This is a, yeah. a film directed it by Sarah Pauly. Especially, especially a lot of the problematic Canadian history. The pro yeah, yeah, absolutely. We tend to bury our heads in the sand a little bit when it comes to some of that. Um, and I don't want to be that person. I want to be knowledgeable. Now, I do, obviously, Dave, we're, we're talking about a story that is an, a, a, an imaginary response. And that's exactly how the author yeah. puts it. It's yeah. an imaginary response to real happenings. Um, but I think that the real happenings, like, uh, I, again, you know, we talk a lot about things like human trafficking throughout the world, and we forget, we forget, we ignore that these things happen right here in our own countries, in our own provinces, in our own neighborhoods, right? Um, and so I just want to, I, I think I want to empower Canadians to be a little bit more aware of some of the things that might be happening uh, that we are not, that are not on our radar. Amy, coming back to, well, cramming, cramming a couple things together here about mm -hmm. the film. This is the first time you've reviewed a movie released in theaters since before the pandemic. Yeah. But you're also someone who really is tuned in to a lot of audio description. In fact, many times uh, you'll share your, your thoughts on the audio description after taking in something a couple of times. Yeah. So along those lines, what was it like trying to review a film that you were taking in in the theater in conjunction with trying to process some of the audio description? Yeah, there were a lot of things going on. My sort of my first time back in the theater in a long time. I, you know what, Dave? I know that you've been to the theater many a bunch, times. A bunch, yeah. And that you're really enjoying it. I'm not sure that I enjoy that experience so much anymore. To be honest with you, I mean, it's one thing to have the big screen, um, but for me, my 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 partial is so low that the big screen is is sort of inconsequential to me. Um, it doesn't make that big of a difference um, in terms of my experience. Um, but the staff was great at the theater. Um, I got my headset with no problem. I I was uh, happened to. To be in Calgary and uh, decided I would take in a, you know, I had a weekend free, I decided I would take in a, in a film. And this one was the one that was playing. So uh, by default, it was the one that I saw. The audio description, this is, for me, this was a very difficult movie to follow. Uh, and it's because you've got eight women speaking very quickly back and forth between each other. And the names are Mennonite names. And so 
Um, some of them aren't uh, as easy to remember as others. Uh, and the description, while it points out sometimes who's talking, it doesn't always. And so with all these really similar sounding voices, I found it really hard to figure out who was talking when and to follow which story was whose. Mm. Um, and so I didn't think that the description did a good enough job in helping me with that. So of course I got the overall context of the story and there's one particular character story that is uh, really, really clear um, because she's the one that has the four-year-old daughter. So anytime we're referencing a kid, we know that we're talking about the mother of this kid, right? Mm. Um, and and Ona, who we know. But some of the other characters, I was just like, how are they related to each other? I couldn't necessarily track all of that. What else were you not enjoying about being back in the theater? Yeah, I mean, uh, I enjoyed the popcorn. I'll say that. <laughs> I did miss movie theater popcorn, as artificial as it is. Isn't that why we love it? <laughs> because it's full of salt and fake butter. Um I, I think I just, I think I just didn't like that I was in closer proximity with strangers, um, in a place, and I would say that where I was in Cal, like nobody masks anymore in, around, and I'm still masking, so I think a part of me felt like I was the odd person out in terms of that, um, and I just, um, I find myself. This was a long movie for me. I find myself getting kind of stir crazy, and that abil ability to not sort of get up and be able to move around. It just wasn't so comfortable for me. Yeah, um, I know that movies, our movies, movie... movies are too long now, flat out. Like yeah, every oh movie gosh, in theaters totally is over two hours, plus the commercials, plus the previews. You're in there for three hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my family here in Vancouver went to see Avatar. Uh, I didn't go with them because it was a three-hour movie plus commercials. Um, uh, plus, I just wasn't comfortable. But their sort of experience of going to the movie theater was like it wasn't so clean. It wasn't like, you know, the staffing is always an issue. And so things weren't feeling so clean and then people were wondering well you know like have these seats been wiped and, and you know like your brain goes into this yeah. place right yeah um, I, so I, think... I was i was at a movie theater which will not be named in montreal yes. while i was on vacation and they clearly had a, a backup in the bathroom that was not yes. but that was not new like this was coming yes. something from the weekend and it was monday afternoon and still yeah. hadn't been cleaned i was yeah. horrified yeah i i mean i think that that is that is how i how i felt in general um, I mean, even when I, we walked into the theater and I thought, oh, like I'll have a hot dog. I have a movie theater hot dog. And, uh, <laughs> and I, uh, you know, my, the, my person who was with me who had eyesight looked at those and said, I don't think we want to eat those. Yeah. Right. And you're like, oh, okay. So how long have those been sitting here? Um, so I just think the quality experience from that perspective's kind of yeah. gone down. And let's be honest, Dave, like I'm a busy human. I actually like to watch like uh, the movie I'm reviewing next week. I watched the, this morning at 4 a.m. because I had some time <laughs> and I was up. And I can't do that if I go to a movie theater. Because Amy Vanty lives a little bit of a different life. I mean, Amy, <laughs> Amy, I will say it is possible that it was the theater that you went to. It's totally possible. Because there are a couple theaters around the GTA that I've been to in the post-pandemic era that are doing a phenomenal, phenomenal job yes. with cleanliness and appropriateness and, and all that jazz. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, it can really depend on the theater. Some got hit so hard during this pandemic that, that they're just never going to bounce back. They're never going to be the yes. same. Yeah, I think that that's totally true. And I might, I might try giving it. I just, and I just find that the streaming content is so excellent. Yeah. And that eventually I will get like uh, these films now. You know, everywhere, uh, anything, everywhere, all at once is on Amazon Prime. And so, mm -hmm. like, I can. Although I've hear, heard it's not described, I haven't seen it yet, but. Uh, 
Um, but really? You know, so like I'm getting, yeah, I don't know. Have you watched it? I, I, I saw it in theaters, but I, but I didn't require the, uh, the description, but I'm surprised yeah. that, a, that a film that would have had such wide theatrical release wouldn't be described. I know a friend of mine did some research and said they couldn't find that it had audio description available. And then when they watched it, they said, "Oh my gosh, it's no, no it really, requires really requires to yeah, oh yeah, it requires yeah. It, like to to keep people informed. It would require incredible description." Yeah. Uh, Amy, we've wandered way off the path. We wandered let's, way off. Let, let's get back on the path here. Women Talking has been nominated yeah. for two Oscars. As opposed to me simply asking you, does it have a chance? How would you rate this film? And based on that answer, I think that'll tell us whether or not you think it's going to take home a statue on Sunday. Yeah, um, I gave this one a nine out of ten for me. Um, and I know you always say that I, I, I my rating scale is a little bit... Like, I don't want to give anything like such a really poor rating that nobody ever wants to see it because all of this artwork is very subjective, right? Um, uh, I think it's really important content. It was a little bit too long for me. And, and Dave, the consequence for a film being too long for me when it has important content is I wonder if the person in the seat thinks especially when it's called women talking oh my gosh these women are talking so long you're like you know that that per that perpetuates that kind of stereotype against women um so that's always in the back of my mind is what is the consequence of of a, a film that has that can make such an impact being mm -hmm. a little too long amy thank you for this and uh we'll talk to you next week i'll be here next week that is amy manti with a review of woman talking which is rated PG and still available in theaters. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.